we must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey, and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Wyrock, and I'm joined by my fellow co-host, F. Scott Feel. And today we have the opportunity to speak to two prominent CAPD, or Commission on Accreditation in Physical Therapy Education members, as we welcome Dr. Sandra Wise, who's the Senior Director of CAPD, and Dr. Doreen Siskel, who is the Vice Chair of CAPD. And what they're going to do today is they're going to provide some perspective of our accreditation organization because, you know, this is a huge role in DPT education. So the Commission on Accreditation in Physical Therapy Education, or CAPD, is the accrediting agency that is nationally recognized by the U.S. Department of Education and the Council for Higher Education Accreditation. CAPD grants specialized accreditation status to qualified entry-level education programs for physical therapists and physical therapist assistants, and they are involved in over 200 physical therapist education programs and over 300 physical therapist assistant education programs in the United States and one program in physical therapy in Scotland. So thank you so much, you guys, for coming on the show today, and thank you so much for your service to the profession. Before we dive into CAPTI, do you think you can give our listeners some background into who you are, your academic journey, and how you became involved with CAPTI? Hello, and thank you for this opportunity. This is Sandra, and I am a registered nurse. I'm not uh, directly uh, educated in the physical therapy education realm, but I've been in healthcare for 30-some years and in higher education for over 20 years. I have been an administrator for nursing and allied health, which included a PTA program. And during that role, I began doing site visits for CAPTI. Then I sat on the commission itself. I then came to being senior director close to four years ago. This is Doreen Siskel. I am a physical therapist. I graduated with my bachelor's degree in physical therapy. I went on for a master's degree in physical therapy, and I completed a PhD in health sciences. So I have over 38 years of clinical practice and over 25 years of full-time higher education practice in physical therapy, physical therapy assistant education, and also doing post-professional doctoral programs. When I first became a 
physical therapist assistant program coordinator, I had to write my first self-study. This was in the early 90s, and then that led me to become a site visitor in 1995. I've been involved with CAPT since then, and for the past six years, I've been an active member on the commission, serving on two different panels. Awesome, ladies. Awesome. Thank you so much for everything that you guys have done. Uh, Sandra, if you don't mind telling our audience, how did CAPT form initially, and how has the organization transformed since its beginning to what it is now? So physical therapy accreditation originated around 1928 and was later a part of the American Medical Association. It was in 1976 that APTA terminated its relationship with the American Medical Association and conducted accreditation through the Physical Therapy Association. CAPSI was then recognized by the USDE and the Council on Higher Education Accreditation, formerly known as COPA, in 1977 and has maintained those recognitions and associations ever since. And Doreen's going to share a little bit about the history of PT programs. So if we go back to 1928, there were PT programs that had to be nine months in length and also had to have 1,200 hours tied to this program. By 1936, the criteria were then changed so that the program was nine months with 1,200 hours and then at least 400 hours of clinical education time. The program requirements again were changed about 1955 to be a program of 12 months in length with over 1,600 hours, including of which 600 incorporated clinical education time. The first PTA program originated in 1971, and it was in 1996 that PT programs were now all required to start moving to the post-baccalaureate level. As institutions were advancing the degree for PT programs to the clinical doctoral level, CAPTI changed its criteria to require that DPT program that require the DPT degree no later than 2015. And now all accredited programs offering a physical therapy degree are at this level. Hmm, that's that's an interesting uh, synopsis of the history about how we came to present day. You know, the mission of CAPTI is to ensure and advance excellence in physical therapy education. And obviously, there's lots of players that try to fulfill this mission. You have the commissioners, you have on-site reviewers, you have CAPTI staff. How does everybody, all the stake, these stakeholders work together to achieve CAPTI's mission of ensuring and advancing excellence in PT education? All programs every 10 years are required to engage in a self-study process. This process is intended to drive self-reflection and quality improvement. So we have on-site reviewers who conduct a site visit where they actually go to the programs to verify and confirm the information that was provided by the program in relationship to the established criteria that is known as the standards and required elements. The commission, or CAPTI, is comprised of 31 commissioners that include both PT and PTA educators, clinicians, academic administrators, public and other, and other members such as consumer members. The commission is the one who makes the actual accreditation decision based on input from the on-site reviewers and the program. It's important to note that there, that accreditation is a process conducted by peers within academia and practice. 
So I will add that the role of the staff is to provide support to the commission, the on-site reviewers, and the programs. The staff assure consistency across program decisions and represent CAPTI at various stakeholder events. Additionally, staff provide continuous direction and feedback to programs as they engage in the accreditation process, as well as conduct workshops throughout the year as programs go through the self-study process. Awesome, ladies. Well, in your opinion, how does CAPTI work together with other groups such as APTA, FSBPT, and ACAPT in order to contribute to advancing the profession? So all three of those organizations are involved in furthering the profession to meet the needs of the population. CAPTI is invited and attends various meetings of three of these three organizations and often sits at the table as an ex-official member in order to provide insight on physical therapy education. So CAPTI does become an integral component of the association, the licensing board, as well as the council for physical therapy education. There's some real good examples I can give you of how these relationships work. For example, there's an educational leadership partnership, which is called ELP, where CAPTI, ACAP, and uh, APTA all come together to explore various models of clinical education to promote student learning. We also work very closely with the Federation of State Boards of PT, ensuring that pass rates that are monitored to help programs to look at their outcomes, as well as to gauge curriculum needs based on a contemporary practice analysis. That's really cool. I'm one of the things that I'm really interested in is um, policy. And obviously, as members of CAPTI, you have to do what the U.S. Department of Education and the Council for Higher Education Accreditation recommends that you do or demands that you do. What influences or requirements have you seen affect CAPTI from these organizations or other national laws? So the U.S. Department of Education has been challenging accreditors to focus on student outcomes in making decisions. Additionally, in using these outcomes, the USDE would like accreditors to create a risk-based decision process whereby programs, institutions with poor outcomes would have a higher level of risk and oversight than programs with good outcomes. Transparency has been a theme for both the U.S. Department of Education and the Council on Higher Education Accreditation whereby accrediting decisions, reasons for decisions, and student outcomes should be made visible to the public. CAPTI has readily accepted these requirements through various venues. All CAPTI decisions and reasons for those decisions are posted on CAPTI's website within 60 days of those decisions. The standards for CAPTI have been very clear about student outcomes that programs must meet and which are used to identify programs more at risk than other programs. In fact, the USDE commended CAPTI on its benchmarking of student outcomes on its most recent recognition process. Awesome. And we'll, we'll put the link to the website on the show notes as well. Um, but ladies, how and why do you feel that the PT and PTA accreditation standards have developed to where they are now? As healthcare delivery continues to change, the CAPTI standards must reflect the contemporary practice expectations of a physical therapist today and how we can meet the needs of patients and clients of all ages and across the whole continuum of health 
wellness, all the way to illness, that spectrum. These standards develop along the expanding scope with clinical practice, where physical therapists are continuing to assume greater responsibility and engage in more clinical decision-making that ultimately contributes to better health outcomes for our patients and clients. And I'd just like to share a little bit about the formal process for changing the accreditation standards. Once a group of stakeholders drafts the revisions, the communities of interest are given an opportunity to respond and provide input. This input is then considered when finalizing any revisions that are then voted on by the Commission for Adoption. Programs are then given adequate enough notice for implementation depending on any revisions that are made. Thus, the standards are set by the physical therapy, educators, and clinicians themselves. Yeah, I totally agree with you guys when you say that, you know, healthcare regulation continues to change. And the fact that, you know, CAPTI has to try to be fluid and make these, you know, and, and make these changes as well must be really challenging. You know, in, in this podcast, we've had a few episodes where this has actually been an issue that has been brought up by some of our guests. So then that leads me to my next question. What are some of the limitations of the current CAPTI accreditation standards? And then what are also some of the strengths of those standards? I'd like to start off talking about some of the strengths because the reason that CAPTI has really developed all these is really to benefit our stakeholders. And when you think about um, graduating competent practitioners, they're there to serve the public. The standards themselves also ensure that students, their families, government officials, um, that the program where the student enrolls really is going to provide a quality education. So the whole CAPTI policies and procedures um, exist so that it allows programs to go through a process of self-examination and then judgment by peers, which then helps them to foster continuous improvement. And overall, this just gives an assurance of external evaluation of the program and conformity that there are general expectations in the professional field that the physical therapists that are graduating today are going to meet society's needs. So as for the weaknesses, some say that the peers reviewing colleagues in the accreditation process is a weakness or a conflict of interest. But others say that a review by peers accentuates the difference between quality oversight by industry or government entities, and that it is appropriate for the accreditation process to be conducted by peers. So it's been a continuous dialogue and debate with not only within CAPTI and physical therapy education, but across the nation as accreditation is conducted primarily by peers, as opposed to other countries where it is done by the government or governmental regulators. Yeah, I think that's a very important distinction because, you know, it's trying to maintain some form of, of giving the power to the profession, I think. Whereas if we get the government more involved, who, who knows what direction that's going to head. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just out of curiosity, guys, how do the current CAPTI standards measure student learning? First of all, let's talk about the whole CAPTI self-study process. The standards call for programs to measure directly how student learning occurs. And this is done comprehensively through the programs, measuring not only student knowledge, but their behaviors and skills. So programs may develop 
traditional written examinations. There might be hands-on practicals. There could be measurement of oral presentations, communication. There could be reflection assignments that really get at values and understanding. There could be evidence-based research projects developed. There could be um, measurements that go into community outreach initiatives. So all these are all ways that we measure didactic or non-clinically non based aspects of the student learning. Then of course, ultimately, there's the clinical education performance tools that really help us to understand how students are progressing toward entry-level practice and are ready to meet those expectations of the workforce. And then I would like to share that one other aspect of how CAPD standards measure student learning is that there are within the standards, quote unquote, bright lines. And these bright lines that programs have to meet are related to um, pass rates from the licensure exam, employment rates, and retention rates, graduation rates. And so CAPD has set benchmarks for each of those that programs have to meet. And if they do not meet them, then they go on a monitoring process to bring up those rates to create a plan to create those rates. And if they don't bring them up according to CAPD rules, and which is recognized by the U.S. Department of Education, that accreditation can be withdrawn if they don't meet those rates within a two-year time period. So just yeah. out, of, out of curiosity, it, you know, if those rates don't get met and, and accreditation is withdrawn, what happens to those students that were currently enrolled in those programs? The process is, is that the withdrawal of accreditation will be delayed for a year so that those students in the program have an opportunity to continue to graduate from an accredited program as they finish the program. So we try not to put the students at harm as the accreditation status is withdrawn. I think that that's something that's really important to point out because I know that there's more there's new PT schools that are popping up and, um, you know, accreditation can sometimes be challenging to obtain, but then also to maintain. And this kind of leads me to my next question. You know, going back to thinking about some of the guests that we've had on our podcast, one of the, one of the discussions that we've had with many guests is the fact that uh, the student board or the PT boards and some of the things taught in PT school seem to be a little bit outdated. And uh, an example would be the use of modalities. So what would have to, so for use, with this in mind, what would need to happen to have curriculum standards updated with current evidence more often? And then, of course, what are the barriers from each of your perspectives to make this happen? Well, in order to maintain accreditation status by the U.S. Department of Education, we have to review the standards required elements every five years. So that would be the maximum time frame for review and any change that might be needed. So as I, as I mentioned before, those standards go out to the communities and the stakeholders, which include the PT clinicians that are out there. So they would be the ones to help us recognize whether or not the standards related to curriculum need to be changed, as well as Kathy looks at the practice analysis conducted by the Federation to determine whether or not the standards need to be changed. So once that review is conducted, then we do have to give you know, programs a little bit of time to make those curricular changes. So I would say that the maximum time frame would be five years, but we do recognize that there could be changes before then and do bring forth possible changes, but it has to be a 
you know, recognized by the stakeholders, the community, that those changes need to be made. You know, as a program director, I can also appreciate the process requiring input from many stakeholders. And it is not uncommon for me to hear something such as modalities. We don't do that anymore. Well, when you get into the CAPTI process of looking at criteria that really opens up to communities, you might hear that there are communities that are dependent on those services and that care. It might not be reimbursable anymore, but it is an important part of that plan of care for a certain population, et cetera. And so the whole CAPTI process really ensures that we're not following trends or we're not listening to one voice. So the seeking of various opinions is an important part of the process. But the flip side is the time to reach consensus about what is appropriate practice can be challenging, and it does often lead to a less rapid change in the standards and the criteria. Um, but the positive is it really does allow for excellent discussion and very thoughtful decision-making about what truly is contemporary practice in physical therapy today. So it sounds like I'm just I just want to kind of summarize what you guys said because I, I find this to be very interesting. So it sounds like that what CAPD is requiring for uh, standards, part of that is uh, going to the stakeholder and making sure that what is going on in current practice is being taught in PT schools, but also delving into, you know, what the evidence says and kind of combining those, having a rich discussion to ensure that um, all key stakeholders and consumers' needs are met, met. Is that kind of a good summary statement of what you just said? I think that's excellent. Mm-hmm. I would agree. So my next question then is, is really, what are the biggest issues that CAPTI has encountered while working to ensure and advance excellence in physical therapy education? I think the biggest issue that you see, you talked about lack of evidence or evidence to support certain practice. We also really do lack a lot of evidence to what what really constitutes quality education and what are the best practices in PT education. Um, When you look across programs, you'll see program A does it one way, program B does it another way. Which one is better when ultimately at the end, the students are all coming out prepared. So that really challenges us as a commission to think about um, how institutions might need its mission, its service population, et cetera, but also get at what really is the best practice and the best delivery models to meet the needs of the students as well as the patients that they will ultimately treat. So one of the other issues I think that Kathy's facing, just to introduce it, is the new and innovative models of education that's going to require Kathy to examine how it implements the standards. We've got a lot of innovative virtual programs, uh, models, blended uh, distance education models that are being implemented that will need to be closely examined and monitored for evidence that they're successful. In addition, I think we'll see a lot of virtual simulation teaching strategies being explored for physical therapy educations, and we'll, not, we'll need to be assured that they result in the quality of education that we've seen from the traditional model. Yeah, I think that that's uh, a really interesting point. You know, you had mentioned that there's 
a lot of, there's not a ton of evidence behind the type, the, the most optimal type of education and that many of the PT programs vary. Um, I'm wondering, is there any type of similarity between how CAPD runs their accreditation process versus like how the AMA runs the accreditation process for medical schools? Are you guys familiar with the differences between the two? Well, I would say that accreditation, the foundation of accreditation has to be the same across all accreditors. So, you know, doing um, a self-reflection through the self-study process is required. If you're going to be USDE recognized, that's required. And there's areas that you have to uh, monitor through that accreditation process, whether it be the faculty, the curriculum, student outcomes, those types of things. So all of that has to be uh, all of those similarities will be there with accreditors. Now, the model for medical education is different because they do a pre-med, they do medical school, then they go to, into, you know, a qualified licensure, then they do an internship uh, and take another licensure exam and then residency. So the whole model of clinical education for medical education is vastly different from physical therapy education that it's hard to compare the process of education between the two professions. I think that that is a really good point. You know, I hear, I think there's a lot of discussion going on in PT education about, you know, moving closer towards the medical model. So I think it's a really interesting comparison to make, but let's, let's take a few steps backwards. You had talked, you guys have had talked earlier about um, the reaccreditation of schools. What happens if, schools don't get reaccredited. I'm interested to know how you conduct the program sites, site visits, and what a reaccreditation assessment looks like. Because I remember in PT school when Kathy was coming for an accreditation assessment, like our faculty was very busy preparing for that. So I'm really interested to know what it would look like from your guys' perspective. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about what the on-site visits look like, but keep in mind that you, that the faculty and your faculty were all preparing the self-study report. That's all done prior to the visit, and that's what the program spent a lot of time on, probably 18 months to, you know, gather the data, analyze the data, do that self-reflection to figure out where the strengths of the program are and where areas for improvement need to occur, which all goes in the self-study report. So once that's all done, written, and submitted, then we do plan for the on-site visit. And the on-site visits are three days in length, and it's a routine component of that accreditation process that the on-site team focuses on validating information that's found in the self-study report. And prior to the visit, they gather the data, they read the self-study report and all the documents that are submitted by the program. And that facilitates Kathy's evaluation of the extent of compliance with the accreditation standards and elements. So the on-site visit includes a series of interviews with the constituents of the program, such as the faculty, students, employers, the graduates, and all other stakeholders. And then the on-site visit includes an exit summary of the team's findings as they have con concluded their visit. And so the team does create something called a visit report. This visit re report is submitted to the accreditation staff within 14 days following that site visit. The report is reviewed, it's edited by staff, and then it's forwarded 
back to the program administrator who has an opportunity to respond to the visit report, the purposes of correcting errors of fact or interpretation, as well as providing any other evidence of compliance that might not have been captured during that three-day site visit. That final report is then given to the commission who then reviews through the specific program panels all the information submitted, including that self-study, that visit report, and communication with the on-site team in the program to reach an accreditation status decision. Interesting. And, you know, I have a kind of a follow-up question to that. What are some of the biggest issues that CAPT is recognizing uh, on these site visits regarding accreditation or reaccreditation for maybe a, a struggling program or a subpar program that's just not cutting it? What are some of the things you're seeing out there that these programs are getting dinged on? Site visits are used to verify the information, as said earlier, that's providing a self-study. The site visits sometimes reveal faculty working in the programs are unaware of those policies and procedures and are not even following them. The clinical education faculty may not be aware of their rights and privileges. Associated faculty may not be evaluated, evaluated as stated in policies and procedures. Programs do a lot of great things also, and they're not often revealed through the self-study process, and they're not documented and codified. So we'd like to get more of the positives and the successes of the programs documented through the self-study process. So the majority of our citations uh, are around some of the formal processes that we have, which is program assessment uh, of the entire program, and then some issues related to resources that programs are experiencing. Mm-hmm. And I think for especially long-time established programs, um, sometimes they fail to keep up to date with the changes in the standards and also the changes that are going on in healthcare and education today. It is always about looking to create the best experiences to get your students to graduate. And we're seeing students coming in with many different learning styles, et cetera. And so sometimes that old curriculum is not matching today's students to meet those outcomes that are needed. Yeah, I think that that is definitely something that we've heard a lot of on this podcast about how do we meet the needs of students today and how do we make sure that we're trying to reach the different styles that we're teaching to. You know, um, one of the requirements that CAPTI is is making a part of their uh, accreditation process is that at least 50% of DPT faculty have to have a terminal degree, which includes a PhD, an EDD, or a a DSC. And I'm curious as to what the reasoning and evidence is behind this requirement that CAPTI has has issued. So if you guys could speak on that, I'd be really interested to hear um, your thoughts on that. You know, the primary responsibility of any academic program is really to graduate very qualified, competent, safe, ethical, entry-level practitioners. Uh, And that's what the mission of my program is. But yet, at the same time, I have a collective group of faculty that belong to a university, an institution that is really there to not only promote the institution, but also to promote and support our profession. And it's clear from the literature that faculty who do have academical 
academic doctorate degrees, such as PhDs, EDs, docs, do produce more research than those with clinical doctorates. We talked earlier about the importance of evidence-based practice. It is often more of that evidence coming through those higher qualified, those who have gone through more of a research academic um, process who will contribute to that knowledge. And I'd just like to add that it wasn't there in the prior evaluation criteria. And what programs are accountable and cited when there was not the 50-50% differentiation, the requirement meeting the bench, benchmark. So that it, it's not really new, but it was added to the language of the standard rather than in the supportive documentation for faculty qualification. Interesting. Interesting. Well, that leads me into my next question perfectly. Uh, ladies, approximately how many new DPT programs do you foresee applying for accreditation in the next year or two? Uh, and do you think the world of academia is going to be able to handle an influx like that, especially with that requirement of like 50%? Because, uh, you know, I think we're struggling right now to, to meet the numbers of, of terminal degrees, especially in the DPT world. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I think whether they have the academic doctorate or even a DBT with clinical specialization, um, there is a shortage of faculty. Um, and it is incumbent upon us as a profession to make sure that um, great, talented professionals do consider advancing into academia and meeting those academic requirements as well. Uh, how that relates to developing programs, uh, we as a commission don't really have that crystal ball to figure out where and how that's going to come. But I think as a profession, it will serve us well to continue to foster development through um, post-professional programs, both clinically based and academically based, so it meets the needs of future students. Yeah, that is a great point. And, and not to bring bring up the crystal ball effect again here, but I'd, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on how you think we should approach that issue and how should we try to come up with a way to maybe nudge these DPT students towards terminal degrees? Is, is there anything that you're seeing that, that's coming up on the horizon that could help that maybe? I see students who um, maybe served in, as my graduate assistants that had a role in teaching, et cetera, and they are looking for post-graduation mentorship. And the message to the students and the new graduates, go back to your academic faculty. They would love to be mentors for you to figure out that academic career. Um, I believe in trying to bring in um, alumni to maybe do guest lecturing, do lab assistance, so they start to see what the world of academia is like. And I think that that really is an opportunity for many of the established DPT programs to take their alumni to start to grow them into a direction that maybe they're really going to come to love. Um, you know, sometimes students think that PT is all about just treating orthopedic patients, and along the way, they start to find things in themselves that um, really speak to different parts of the profession. So I think this is the great challenge to all of us 
who maybe are senior to start to recognize the talented young individuals out there who will make the next wonderful generation of academicians. And I think that one of the other challenges, and we may speak to this a little later, is the cost of education today. So it becomes a challenge to go through a DPT program and, and pay for that education and then move forward into an academic doctoral degree. Because it, I don't know how much you're aware of education and how it works, but financial aid has a maximum cap for students. And that can be reached through the, the, through the DPT program. And so then the, the academic doctoral degree becomes almost a self-pay initiative, which can be a struggle for many wanting students that want to do it. Yeah, I would agree that that's probably one of the biggest issues that we've heard on this podcast regarding why people aren't pursuing more advanced degrees and just about um, why people need to go and work right away because, you know, you have loans that you have to pay off. You've reached your max of student loans that you've already taken off. So that can definitely be a huge, huge challenge to meet. And I, I mean, I hope that we can solve that. Do you guys have any um, thoughts on any type of solutions for that at all? You know, it is, um, again, th this is APTA and advocacy, advocating for why are there not more scholarship opportunities for graduate school and physical therapy education, or even most, or even postgraduate loan forgiveness programs. Um, you hear medical students uh, being afforded all sorts of opportunities to offset their cost of their education. I would love to see similar types of opportunities afforded to physical therapists and other members of the health profession. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with that. I mean, one of the things that I've mentioned before is that there's a, a physician scientist program that's funded by the by the NIH, and we don't have anything like that in PT, and that would be a really great way to try to get more terminally degree-trained physical therapists and researchers within our profession. But like you said, it has to be advocated for. This is federal money. This is something that APTA has been talking about and has been going to Congress to talk about. But um, unfortunately, I just don't think that our voices are being heard yet. So hopefully... Hopefully you guys are inspiring people to be able to go out and do that advocacy work. What changes do you see happening in the future for accreditation standards and for CAPTI with all these healthcare changes going on, with the cost of higher education increasing? What are some changes that you see happening? I, I think some of the, the things that we have talked about is that there might be more understanding of different delivery models. So maybe the face-to-face -face lecture, you know, uh, the stage-on-the-stage -stage model where students have to come into class, sit there all day, go home all night to study. Maybe those days are gone. There might be more efficient ways to do this. We might have the use of technology through simulated education that could cut down on the number of weeks needed in clinical education. That clinical education is very burdensome to the staff that are working with patients. So there might be ways we can optimize delivery that 
still make sure that we graduate these very competent students who can really work in like direct access environments in new ways in primary care and tertiary care in health and wellness. And I would say from a, a more broader picture initiative looking at what the, is being requested from the um, national recognizers of accreditation that we mentioned before, the USDE and the Council on Higher Education Accreditation, is that they really are supporting uh, accreditors to be more autonomous from the parent organization. And as that moves forward, CAPI will need to continue to assure its compliance with those requirements, yet maintaining a very highly impactful relationship with the Physical Therapy Association and the community it serves. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because we're finding that the community's needs are definitely changing. Um, and so we're going to have to do everything we can to keep up with those changes moving forward. We've had a lot of guests on the show that, you know, have really started to dive into population uh, health and, and community health care, you know, and it's wellness and, you know, prevention stuff that, you know, we're going to have to start addressing that or it's just going to be too costly for, for America's healthcare system. But, um, you know, ladies, this has been an amazing uh, episode and I'm just so thrilled uh, to get to talk with you guys and, and really get a view into CAPTI because I, I think it's something that people just don't know enough about. Uh, they know the letters and they, they kind of know what it does, but, but to really get an insight as to what you guys do um, is, is super helpful to our audience. H how would you guys recommend somebody maybe wanting to get involved in CAPTI uh, what would you recommend they do? Let's say there's a new grad who's, who's really interested in this stuff. How, how should they go about a path uh, towards CAPTI? Now, that's a good question. It, it, it's difficult to get directly involved with CAPTI as a new graduate, other than to be involved locally by perhaps sitting on advisory boards for programs that have education programs. But the, the entire process it revolves around primarily the educators and clinicians having some experience. So we have on-site visitors that do come from the educators, as I mentioned before, and the clinicians. So they could certainly become an on-site reviewer. And from there, the path is they could, they could sit on the commission, but always to then look at the opportunities when the call goes out for comments and inter interactions about the standard required elements, about the impacts, of physical therapy education and be engaged in those conversations. And I would say being engaged would, if, if there's anything that you, that a person feels needs to be improved or changed, I mean, that's your time to be able to put your voice out there and really show that you are a stakeholder in this to help facilitate that. So we end this show with one specific question that we ask all of our guests and we're really excited to hear what you guys have to say about this one. If you could change one aspect of healthcare education in, in physical therapy or some other healthcare profession, which aspect would you change and how would you change it? I would like to see education be more affordable. We have gone to the doctoral degree, so that means you have to have a bachelor's degree and now this extra. And for young professionals today who also need to embark on family life and independence, et cetera, affordability is key. And my perspective is that I would like to see this country create some sort of healthcare system that is holistic and available for all citizens. 
this country has one of the highest maternal mortality rates among developed countries. There's no reason why that should be with the technology and resources in this country. So I would like to see all healthcare professions and education programs embrace this need and improve our healthcare system so that we can improve the health of all the citizens of this country. I love it. I love it. Great answers, ladies. And thank you again so much for your time and for coming on the show today. Uh, where can people find out more about you and reach out to you if they have any follow-up questions or just want to chat Capti stuff? So Capti's website is captionline.org. And on there, you can find the accreditation staff and their email addresses, as well as the commissioners are listed on there as well. So probably the best way is to reach out to one of the staff who can uh, connect them with the commissioners if that's what the question was. Awesome. Awesome, ladies. And we'll put all those links in the show notes as well. So thank you again for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Same here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Access to healthcare is one of the largest issues facing both providers and patients, as millions of people worldwide lack timely and affordable access to healthcare. Anywhere Healthcare, a telehealth platform, is a simple, low-cost option for providers and patients that eliminates the barriers to access to all kinds of healthcare. To find out more, check out anywhere.healthcare, which is available on our show notes. And if you use the code HET in all caps when you email to sign up, you'll save 25% off the total cost. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.